broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Capital Club Radio, brought to you by Flock Specialty Finance. Hello and welcome to another exciting and informative edition of Capital Club Radio, where Flock Finance takes an active leadership role in the markets which it participates. It uses its expertise, information, and capital to design financial products that promote the health of the financial underserved markets. Now, here's your host, Michael Flock. Thank you, and uh, good morning to all our listeners, and welcome, Reed Zeising. Uh, we're absolutely delighted today to have uh, Reed here. He is the owner of uh, Cherokee Advisors and uh, a holding company with multiple companies and investments. Uh, specifically, we know Reed through Cherokee Funding, uh, which uh, we fund with our capital. So today, before we get into the business, uh, the, the many multiple businesses you're in, Reed, can you give us a little background as to how you actually got started and what kind of experiences and skills have you developed along the way that uh, have helped you, you know, grow and develop these businesses? Sure. Hi, Michael. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I'll start wherever you want, but kind of growing up overseas, a mentor of mine and a friend, friend's father kind of early on was uh, one of the heads of Morgan Stanley's operations in Asia. And I fell in love with finance from a, you know, very early age. And after undergrad, I uh, ended up in New York, was an analyst uh, in love with finance, had the opportunity to move to Europe, spent a number of years there uh, running around talking to institutional clients and working on capital markets projects and uh, had the opportunity to come to Atlanta, worked for a wonderful investment bank, Robinson Humphrey, through the 90s, and uh, just gave me great uh, exposure to the financial markets and allowed me the opportunity to uh, do my own thing and invest in a variety of businesses that, uh, through random happenstance that I'd be happy to share, uh, ended up with Cherokee Funding. Yeah, I'd love to lo- know what some of the common denominators are in all these diverse experiences that you had. I mean, venture capital, Robinson Humphrey. I, I knew you were in uh, you know, in Europe for a while, in Tokyo. How, how does this all come together in the in the biography, the personal biography of Reed and the professional biography of Reed? How, it seems awfully diverse and, you know. Well, it, it all comes together through no control of my own, but that's a uh, larger philosophical belief. Um, I was the child of an expat and my father, mother and my younger sister and I moved overseas as a result of jobs that he had when I was seven years old and didn't come back to the States until I was 18. And kind of through that uh, unbelievable gift of traveling and being exposed to so many things as a kid, uh, the world became kind of a very small place and I became a lifelong learner. Mm -hmm. So um, exploring for me and learning for me is kind of at the core of my being that leads to just a deeply rooted belief in self-efficacy versus self-esteem. So if you will, the process and not the results. So, uh, with a good process and lifelong learning, I've got a shot. So a lot of focus on development through these different experiences in different countries. And did you actually learn some of the languages too? I did. I did. My uh, J- 
Japanese is still pretty good, and my French is still pretty good, but... Uh, Vraiment. <laughs> oui. <laughs> I lived in Paris, too, and uh, learned a lot through the... Uh, uh, through the actually learning languages, I think is also important in business, even if you don't actually use it day to day. Oui, oui, j'ai habité à Paris pour deux ans <laughs> parce que tous les jours je parlais en anglais. Excellent. So I loved living in Paris. Yeah. Um, I had an absolutely wonderful experience there for two years. Um, I subsequently, after coming back to Atlanta and having the opportunity to work for Robinson Humphrey. Literally over the next roughly eight years, spent half of my time in Europe and half my time in the U.S. So I, I had a very unusual um, schedule. I traveled two weeks every two weeks uh, to Europe and literally lived on European time when I was here in Atlanta. And I think the exposure there was magnificent in the sense that so many different cultures and so many different styles and so many different uh, people and cultures that it made me kind of very accepting of uh, promoting people, supporting people, and allowing their talents to shine rather than dictating exactly how everything should be. I experimented with the uh, dictatorial uh, process <laughs> And it didn't uh, serve me very well. Dictatorial in terms of managing a Management business? style, correct, yeah. Yeah. correct, correct. Yeah. So, you know, people in process for me is, you know, really everything. And in the funding business specifically, you know, that you and I are involved in together, um, it's been magnificent. I mean, we have people in that business from diverse backgrounds that add a variety of talents and that are just given the process and the systems to kind of maximize uh, their talents. And I, I, I've just, I, I really have to credit a lot of the travel and a lot of the exposure to a variety of cultures for uh, allowing me to at least eventually see that. It also sounds like then a lot of this could be serendipity. Uh, things happen in life and we don't always know why, but it sounds like you've kind of taken advantage of some of these um, experiences that just, they were never planned, that you were following kind of how you're your father's career moving around these different countries and such. So a book that, uh, you know, I love, uh, fooled by randomness. You know, we have a tendency to credit our successes to our talents and our failures to bad luck. <laughs> and that's an awfully egotistical, mm -hmm. uh, way to look at things. Right. And I do think that there is, uh, a randomness to life. So, um, I've been able to take advantage of opportunities that were presented, but I won't say it was through perfect planning that I recognized each of them. So the evolution of Cherokee Advisors then was not done through perfect planning. You didn't hire McKinsey to do a I, grand strategic <laughs> plan, and you're going to go into restaurants and legal funding. And Correct. It was somewhat, you know. Actually, I think you told me once before, it was sometimes the people that you met along the way that you were impressed with that also drove some of your decisions and directions and investments. Is that Abs right? Absolutely. So, for example, while at uh, Robinson Humphrey, a college friend from undergrad gave me a call and wanted to come and see me about uh, starting a business. And I literally asked him if I needed to bring my checkbook. He said yes. And on the golf course, I wrote him a check for what had just been incorporated and ultimately became 
uh, Cozy, which is the restaurant chain of kind of sandwich shops that are Boston, New York, DC, Philadelphia, and now headquartered in Chicago. And taking that from zero to 79 stores before we took that public in 2002. And while it's struggled as a publicly traded company, it was a phenomenal run from 94 to 2002. And that allowed me the freedom to uh, invest in other businesses, which was an absolute gift, but it was a friend with an idea who I had been close to that literally gave me a call. So uh, there was no I had had a fair amount of restaurant experience, but there was no kind of strategic big picture planning in that particular instance. Wow. Okay. And so you're still in restaurants today. So right? what, what happened with the restaurants? I have had every experience in the restaurant space possible. I have had a uh, blessed experience. I've had challenged experience. I had uh, really the worst financial loss of my career after taking uh, Backyard Burgers private uh, and ultimately had to go through reorg. Um, having the chance to start and take Cozy Public was incredibly rewarding. Um, and then really, again, through just friends, but a small restaurant group here in Atlanta called Genki Noodles and Sushi was a friend who I grew up with in Tokyo, who wanted to be a chef his entire life, who I convinced to move to Atlanta. That's interesting. So there is a connection then between Tokyo and your business yes, in Cherokee. Yes, yes. So in, in the case so. of in the case of Genki, yes, it was a yeah. childhood friend who was in love with the restaurant space, who was a very good chef, who I convinced wow. to move to Atlanta, who right. restarted that. Right. So another theme here I'm seeing is relationships, right? Exactly. The people that you trust and admire and are friends with that are become partners and you share those experiences and opportunities together. Absolutely, because actually divesting of an investment that had two large plaintiff's attorneys involved was what led to Cherokee funding. If you go back six years, I didn't know anything about the legal funding space. Mm -hmm. It was two large plaintiff's attorneys that asked me to set up a fund to advance money to their clients, to provide necessary medical care for the uninsured and to not do it like the competition. And they outlined who the competition was and what it was that was causing issues and where the opportunities were to do a better job and why those services were so essential for their clients. And I literally, I was financially capable to model the business ultimately and, and make some assumptions and then test that. But again, it was through those particular relationships that I was introduced to the business. And so what is different about the Cherokee process in legal funding or plaintiff cash advance? What is different about Cherokee versus your competition? Yeah, the, um, it's dramatically different. And that's the wonderful, wonderful thing. So I would say if you want to talk about, um, you know, I mentioned fooled by randomness, but now we could talk about kind of Malcolm Gladwell uh, theories and thoughts in which he talks about how big's the pond, the lake, or the ocean, and how big are you as a fish. And if you go back during a part of my career, we ran a statistics arbitrage book, and it was successful in terms of performance and modestly successful in terms of asset size, but that is a very big ocean with a lot of really, really smart competition. Mm -hmm. And so compare that to the legal funding industry, and what you have is a much smaller pond, mm -hmm. 
okay? But with competition that is uh, much easier to compete against. So I will just give you a little history. The legal funding business was set up juxtaposed, in my opinion, with the plaintiff's best interests. In other words, there were companies out there advancing money to plaintiffs with the idea of capturing that ultimate settlement, right? Juxtaposed in terms of interest. So the Cherokee process is all around at the answering the phone with a smile because at the other end is someone in need mm -hmm. and satisfying those needs. And what are those needs? Those needs are evening the playing field with insurance companies. That is the overriding need. Insurance companies have two massive advantages. Mm -hmm. They have time and they have money. They have the checkbook and they're in no hurry to write it. Mm -hmm. So the insurance company playbook with any catastrophic injury is offer them a fraction of what the case value is worth and see if they'll take it. Mm -hmm. So my point around that is what you want to do is get plaintiffs through this terrible time. Something has happened to them. There is no plaintiff in the world that I have ever spoken to or ever heard of that would like to have the money they receive over the circumstances that they've been through. Sooner rather than later. They would, yeah. no, I'm saying they would not want what happened to mm -hmm. them to have happened. They don't want mm -hmm. to be involved in this. Mm -hmm. So it's the double negative, right? right? They're involved in a tragic situation and they're disadvantaged by the insurance company. So right. how can we help? We can help through two major areas. We can help through advancing them funds to pay necessary bills while attorneys do the best job possible to recoup for them as much as possible. And there are still, despite the changes in the healthcare industry in the United States, and despite government regulations, there is still a large percentage of the population that's uninsured and has no access to quality medical care. So by introducing them or referring them to a variety of quality medical providers, they're able to receive the services necessary and help themselves get better. So the idea is not to capture what's coming to somebody, but to advance as little as possible so that there's as much as possible for them at a settlement. Mm -hmm. At the same time for the attorneys, the huge advantage is they want to be focusing on helping their clients. They don't want to be focused on dealing with a variety of suppliers. They don't want to be focused on dealing with funding companies that over advance and overcharge. So if we sit on the side of the attorney and the plaintiff with the sole goal of evening the playing field with insurance companies, that's a dramatically different way of looking at the industry than the competition does. So it's a really wonderful service you're providing these consumers who've been through trauma in many cases and it's tremendous there is no way that you can come into our office and if you had the chance to see any of these cases not cry mm -hmm. i mean the things that have happened the parents of children who have been injured that have had to stop working that have depleted their savings all with one goal nobody's getting rich nobody's retiring off of this stuff right, they just right. want their needs met is there a specific story or anecdote you could share with our listeners I, Yes, Without I mentioning can. Names, but yeah, that really, you know, yes, typifies a, a, the... a, a family catastrophically injured child um, in an elevator, crushed and quadriplegic for life, needed almost immediately a variety of rehabilitation uh, 
options, therapy, possibilities, needed a handicapped vehicle. The parents didn't have the ability to transport the handicapped child. Parents had quit their jobs, had depleted their savings. Wow. And all with the goal of, of course, as any of us would, just helping their child. And insurance company, the life care plans, I can just give you some general outlines. Just the life care plan for this child was close to $7 million. Mm. And that is talking about the medical care needs that that child is going to have for the rest of their life. And the insurance company took the position that $2 million sounded like a lot of money. They should offer that as settlement and proposed that they could, as soon as they had accepted that as settlement and mm -hmm. signed a release, could afford to purchase the handicapped vehicle and begin what possible rehabilitation services would be available. Mm -hmm. I mean, th that's just tragic, right? So in that particular case, we were able to purchase the handicapped vehicle, provide a variety of services, give the family relief, and literally more than fivefold the settlement offer was ultimately reached. So you guys really go the extra mile then for the plaintiff to provide not just the capital, but the you help them get the services that they need. Is that right? We do complete budgeting services. Okay. Clients will call the, uh, there's a natural uh, tendency for a client to call and ask for more money than they need. Right. And we have, we, we are all in this for their best interest. So rather than the competition, which gladly advances as much money as possible and as much money as desired, right? What we do, we'll get the call that says, I need $10,000. And our response is me too. Mm -hmm. Where are we going to get it? And what are we going to do with it? Now let's talk about how much is your rent? Mm -hmm. How much is your food, mm -hmm. your utilities, and your gas to mm -hmm. get around? Mm -hmm. Okay. You want to take as little as possible over whatever period of time so that there's as much as possible for you at settlement. Right. Don't take money that you're going to pay for because, by the way, right. you'll probably spend it, mm -hmm. right, and need to come back for more. So we have entire kind of budgeting services mm -hmm. that we use in the plaintiff's best interest. And we, your competition doesn't do that? At all. Okay. We do something, we call it rolling contracts. Uh -huh. Do the simple math. Yep. Give somebody $10,000 up front mm -hmm. versus give them $1,000 a month for mm -hmm. 10 months. Mm -hmm. The fees are half as much, right? Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. the money's outstanding half the time on average, five mm -hmm. months versus 10. Mm -hmm. In addition, with lower rates, lower fees, and shorter minimums, it saves them roughly 75% versus the competition in terms of fees. And that money all ends up in the plaintiff's pocket, pocket Why? where it should be. So it's cheaper. Absolutely. Cheaper. Absolutely. It's in the plaintiff's best interest. It's more customer service. Right. It's budgeting with them and helping them understand wants versus needs. Mm-hmm. It's helping them understand that this is not an ATM machine, mm -hmm. that this, these are emergency funds for emergency situations, and in their best interest, to keep the most for themselves as mm -hmm. possible. Mm -hmm. Now, you started uh, Cherokee Funding in Atlanta, obviously, and your initial focus, I think, was the Southeast, but I think you've got some plans to expand beyond the well, Southeast. It's, <clears throat> yep, and it's, it's expanding, and we have plans to continue to expand. Now... 
started in Georgia, started in Atlanta. Um, the one of the two attorneys was in South Carolina that originally asked us to uh, set up the fund. The other was in the Low Country in Georgia, and started there, expanded into Atlanta. Um, what's happened now is we're the largest funding company in Georgia. We're the largest funding company in South Carolina. We're top five in Florida, Oklahoma, Alabama, Mississippi, and then we've also expanded into Missouri, Kansas, Michigan, Ohio. We've done a just a variety of things through associations and working closely with attorney and trial lawyer associations, associations of justice. And it has been to date all referral based. So we don't do any TV advertising. We're never on the radio, except <laughs> for right now. Um, with the point being, mm -hmm that can disassociate the plaintiff from the attorney. Mm -hmm. So the competition will advertise on TV mm -hmm. with the message that mm -hmm. basically says, if you have a lawsuit and right. need cash, call us, right? right? They call mm -hmm. at two o'clock in the morning after watching a Judge Judy rerun. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the point is that's probably not the best time or place or thought right. to be requesting funds. Yep. We don't do that because what happens in those cases is the funding companies advance those funds or approve those funds or say they're going to approve those funds yep. and then reach out and contact the attorney. Mm -hmm. The attorney, they haven't taken a look at the case documentation. They haven't taken a look at the case values. They haven't taken a look at advance rates mm -hmm. versus those case values because that's the key. Don't advance too much while helping the plaintiff meet right. their emergency needs. Right. Don't advance too much. Right. So as you expand then uh, in our country, I, I, I know the attorneys are obviously a, the essential partner kind of in your network. How do you uh, qualify attorneys? How do you, what are your criteria for partnering with attorneys? It's a, it's a great question. So from a, there's, there's two ways to look at that. So types of business that they have, there are, when I say high end and low end, I mean no disrespect to any group of attorneys. I'm mm -hmm. talking about the average mm -hmm. case values mm -hmm. that they focus on. So there are attorneys out there that focus on a small number of very large catastrophic cases that take a long period of time and require a tremendous amount of work. And then there are companies out there that focus on lower average case values that settle in shorter time periods. Some of those attorneys themselves advertise on TV or on billboards. Catastrophic in general, mm -hmm. almost never do. Mm -hmm. So both of those categories are very attractive. How you then partner with those attorneys is really, um, I have found plaintiff's attorneys in general to be incredibly dedicated professionals to helping their clients, right? They are there believing in their clients and they do a wonderful job of um, sorting through, kind of making sure that all of their cases in advance are real and valid. So 
Bar associations, of course, they're registered with any sort of complaints that may be filed with them. We have access to all of those databases. Mm -hmm. So simplistically, we can screen that way. Mm -hmm. But after that, we will partner with all ends of the spectrum because for each of them, there's a need. So it sounds like in addition to kind of business common denominators of success with these attorneys, there are also some personal traits, though, that you look for in these attorneys, like you just said, dedication and sensitivity to their their clients. And are there any other personal traits that you look for? Well, I Um, have found, uh, that's that's a really good question. I find that by, you know, we speak to and have met every attorney client, you know, that we have over time. We may not initially meet them. Right. We may just do a bar check okay. and and kind of see how they are in, in yep. terms of standing. Right. Um, and that happens because existing attorney clients that we know are referring others, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? If I had to guess, <clears throat> I'd say only out of law school graduates, depending on the school, but it's a very small minority mm-hmm. that go to be plaintiff's attorneys, mm-hmm. right? The majority mm-hmm. of law schools are going into kind of right. corporate America and right. kind of general corporate practices. So the huge advantage of that is that these plaintiff's attorneys all know each other. Mm-hmm. They really know each other. So we will get a ton of referrals from my law school roommate, practices in this town, at this place. I've told him about you. You've got to call him. Mm-hmm. Got it. What were the lessons learned then as you grew and are growing Cherokee funding? What are the lessons learned from your restaurant business, if there are any, that apply still to, you know, the businesses now that you're building in the future? All uh, all around customer service. service, So I I don't think that the legal funding space was originally set up with the plaintiff and attorney at the core of those operations. Mm -hmm. Right, and everything has to focus mm-hmm. on the plaintiff's needs and on the attorney's needs, because attorneys do a wonderful job. What I was what I was saying about kind of screening attorneys, they do a wonderful job of screening. The misnomer in the in the general population is that uh, frivolous lawsuits are out there and that they are taking up too much time and too much money. While I'm not saying I've never seen a frivolous lawsuit, the contingency fee setup that these plaintiff's attorneys work under weeds a lot of that out. Mm -hmm. These attorneys don't get paid unless they get a recovery for that plaintiff. So there's tremendous screening. So in answer to your question about any crossover between legal funding and the restaurant space, it's all around customer service. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that the average funding company is focused on the customer's needs as much as the restaurant space, which does an excellent job because mm-hmm. otherwise you walk with your feet. Right, exactly, exactly. Tell us about some of the other uh, companies that are part of Cherokee Advisors. So um, the third that I'm heavily involved in is a company called the Park Catalog. And if you go to theparkcatalog.com, it is one of the largest municipality dealers in the United States. And so very kind of mundane products, park benches, picnic tables, bike racks, garbage cans. And again, that was um, through a relationship. Mm -hmm. A uh, friend of mine from undergrad 
was introduced me to the founder of the business. We, I'll make this story quick, but uh, entrepreneur uh, up in New York started a catalog company in fencing. Ask us, ask Chris George, who's the CEO now of the Park Catalog and myself to invest in it. We did, he built it, he sold it, we made money. He asked us to start a flooring catalog. We gave him money. He built it, he sold it, we made money. He asked us to do a municipality catalog. We gave him more money, he built it, he went to sell it, and we said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Let's check out these other businesses, mm -hmm. the flooring and the fencing. Mm -hmm. The buyers were very happy. They mm -hmm. had quintupled in size over the following five years. Right. And Chris was going through some changes in his life up in New York, wanted to take on, uh, was a hedge fund manager himself, wanted to take on a different challenge. And so we bought it with a group of investors and over time uh, recapped everybody out of that business except Chris and I. So uh, that's been a wonderful experience, but again, very similar to the others in that it was a friend who introduced me to somebody. Right, who we, right. So some of it is serendipity. Yes. But what's common is the relationships and the confidence, the confidence that you have in your partners. Correct. And uh, But let me ask you, I mean, park benches, that, that sounds like a commodity. Now, how, how do you differentiate yourself with a catalog of park benches? So that's, that's a good question. I mean, <laughs> right. And, and let's be perfectly clear, right? That is a low gross margin business right. that again, runs through efficient process, right? So that's all about what we're doing at Cherokee funding today mm -hmm. is what we've done at the park catalog. Mm -hmm. So, and mm -hmm. that is building the most efficient systems possible to not only market to municipalities and property managers and universities and so on and so forth, but to be able to source those products effectively and to be able to deliver those products. So it is a price competitive business, but there is also a relationship side to that sales. If you take the average municipality buyer or average uh, university or parks buyer, um, they would, yes, they have to bid out. Yes, you have to be price competitive. Yes, uh, lowest price doesn't always win, mm -hmm. but it certainly comes into play. And so efficiencies and systems are key to that business running effectively because as a dealer, not as a manufacturer, right? We are not fully vertically integrated. We do some light assembly and right. pick and pack, but that business again is all around systems. So fast forward to the funding business right. and you see similar learnings from that uh -huh. that we're implementing at the funding business. A year and a half ago, uh, two years ago now, we reached out <clears throat> to competitors in the industry right. to see if we could purchase, that were larger, to see if we could review and purchase their systems. In essence, paying them to subsidize their own development costs. Right. right? The largest company in the industry, terrific guy who runs that business, but was not interested, right? right. Said it was proprietary, wasn't yep. interested. Yep. Maybe the third largest company at the time was interested. Yep. So made an agreement uh, with him. Turns out that the system was built on an older platform that was no longer available. So in essence, we had to redo it again. Right. That had us step back, look at a variety of suppliers, 
and chose to build our entire operations around Salesforce. Now, Salesforce has a backbone called force.com, and you can integrate through a middleware use of a product called Conga, it doesn't matter, but um, tremendous efficiencies in terms of Salesforce, most people know of it as a CRM system, yep. right? Sales help, yep. clients, leads, conversion, et cetera. But we've taken that all the way through the back end of the business through underwriting and risk management. Mm -hmm. So when we implemented the what I'm gonna call phase one of that technology implementation, we probably knew 70% of what we wanted and probably came in on time and under budget, which is, tremendous for technology platform implementation. Mm -hmm, I have mm -hmm. not seen many that go that way. Mm -hmm. And with that, probably got in the first go around 50% increase in efficiencies mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. productivity. Mm -hmm. So right now we're implementing what I call phase two, which is significant, significant expansion and automation of those systems. And that's all around how can you gather documentation, analyze documentation, and as a, my, finance background comes into play here because it's all around data analysis, yeah. right? And it's all around efficiencies and data analysis. And I think that back to your one of your earlier questions about advantages over the competition, I don't think the competition in general That's is that. looking at categorically what case values are worth. Is there Are there differences in, uh -huh. in zip codes? Are there differences in insurance companies? Yes is the answer to all of that. Mm -hmm. But to quantify that mm -hmm. and to have the advantage of knowing ultimately mm -hmm. what how insurance companies value things is tremendous. So I see we're really connecting the dots here. I'm, I'm getting it now. You've got, uh, first of all, relationships with partners, you know, critical. And, and some of that was serendipity. You met them Correct. sort of by accident. But, you know, you have a common confidence in each one of those partners. Then you focus on customer service, whether it's restaurants or funding or municipality dealers. And then thirdly, process, a focus on process in each one of these businesses, which is not just for efficiency purposes, but also to differentiate yourself from competition. So it sounds like we're kind of writing a Harvard business case here, Reed. In fact, didn't you just complete a Harvard MBA uh, program, an executive program recently? Well, I'm still in it. I go back again this January. I absolutely love going to Boston. Uh, I was very blessed my uh, to be accepted into that uh, program and started a year ago. And again, that just feeds back into my kind of lifelong learning. Um, one of the greatest organizations probably that that I've ever been involved with has been YPO. And it was Young President's organization that kind of gave me exposure to that right. and uh, that I continue to participate in. Yeah. But uh, I would say I'm probably not qualified to write a case study for Harvard, but I certainly love participating in the analysis. Well, of it sounds it. like there's one here in, in development. So uh, I look forward to the, the, the series of Reed Zeising's uh, case studies. It's fascinating. And, uh, but, you know, in all of this, you know, it, it sounds nice now to our listeners and, and you know, you're extremely articulate and everything sounds smooth, but you you know, always are bumps on the road and, and nothing grows in a straight line. So I'm sure you've had a few nights where you may not have slept too well. And I guess I'm looking for also for our listeners, what keeps you up at night? What really does anything uh, bother you? And, you know, what, what where, when have you been stressed? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. So I've never worked a day in my life. And that's going to sound 
strange to people, but I find something you love so you don't have to work a day in your life. And everything that I've done, it doesn't mean that there's not hiccups and I'm happy to, I'll share a bunch of them. And I've made tremendous mistakes. And, but I've loved everything that I've done along the way. So the sleeping at night, I don't sleep much, right? <laughs> I, I, I don't. I, uh, early on, I was a kid that got up at kind of 4.30, 5 o'clock at the latest in the morning. I continued kind of studying real early. I had a time clock that just wow. functioned that way. Um, I continue to not uh, sleep very much, but it's not as a result of stress or something keeping me up at night. In answer to your question about things that are on my radar screen to be aware of, um, the business of funding is capital intensive. So you need to be planning and foresightful in your growth plans. We have kind of stair-stepped the growth of this business very responsibly. I think that the reason that <clears throat> I've chosen to stair-step the growth in this business rather than what I'd refer to as a hockey stick model, mm -hmm. which says we're just going to blow up from right. 10 to 1,000 very right. quickly, right. Um, is because of the lessons that I learned in the last downturn. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, I'll go anywhere you want with this, but I'd be happy to share. I've, you know, had it handed to me as well. You had it handed to you? Oh, sure. Um, in one of the greatest experiences of my life, and it was, it taught me so many things on so many levels, and I don't know if uh, listeners are really interested in any of this, but I, through meeting friends, was exploring the franchise world in restaurants. Again, this is a gentleman in Dallas, Texas, who exposed me to some very large businesses that he owns in the franchise space. That led to a list of, uh, the theory was, mm -hmm. the theory was franchise owners that had large real estate holdings in the mid 2000s, when I believed that the real estate market was expensive, to sell that real estate and in essence subsidize the purchase price. Mm -hmm. So that led to a list of 19 publicly traded companies that had those characteristics. And to the top of that list came Backyard Burgers, which I mentioned earlier. And Backyard Burgers was publicly traded, but run like a private company and uh, headquartered in Memphis, Tennessee. And it took about two years, and it was a semi-hostile takeover in which I filed a 14D to affect management change and uh, ultimately came to an agreement to buy that company and take it private. And what happened, we closed that November of 2007. I began that process in August of 2005. And that chess match of kind of a semi-hostile takeover, which would be far too long for the you mm. know, limited time that we have, but is a very interesting case study in and of itself. Um, that timing in hindsight to do an LBO public to private transaction was difficult because when the downturn hit, <clears throat> and there were tremendous learnings in this, um, when the downturn hit, what happened that I didn't foresee was significant negative same-store sales. So I had mm -hmm. modeled 
with 5% downside deviation, because in my experiences, that was kind of the worst of it in for uh, franchisors and franchisees. What happened was roughly double that. And what happened was is that franchisees themselves had been over levered. So in the downturn, there were franchisees going under. Mm-hmm. Backyard Burgers competed in a made-to-order, 100% Black Angus mm-hmm. uh, hamburger market that's very expensive to provide for. And in the downturn, in cities such as Memphis, value meals ruled, and we could not compete in the 99-cent world. So um, that led to a tremendous management experience for me that I'd, <clears throat> I'll just kind of share in general. So. When I put together that deal, bought that company, I brought in and hired a CEO. And the CEO had had very seasoned, on the surface, very, very successful, and had had a huge hit uh, in the 80s with a very well-known hamburger chain. And the fast forward two years, and in the midst of the downturn into 2009, What happened was that fundamentally, I believed that the company should lower its cost of entry into franchising and to do that, go with an inline model. I won't bore you with all the details. The CEO that I had brought in um, had had success in standalone stores. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately, we disagreed. Ultimately, we went to the board to present the two various plans And ultimately, the board did exactly as I would have probably done, and that was back the person with more experience, and that was the CEO. So that learning forced me to resign. Mm -hmm. Tremendous learning in that. Can't go to the board with two different plans and be the one who's not chosen and stick around, (laughs) right? So Mm -hmm. that was tremendous learning, Mm -hmm. painful. Um, And then ultimately, two years later, the CEO managed to drive it into bankruptcy. So another tremendous learning with no controls at that point in time right. that was financially very expensive. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I take away from that one of the greatest experiences of my life. Would I like to have back the multiple seven figures? Of course, but mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. really doesn't matter, mm-hmm. right? The learnings from the, what I like in hindsight, would I script it exactly that mm-hmm. way? Mm-hmm. No. Mm-hmm. But lesson number one is when you bring in a CEO, check the relevancy and currency of his or her resume. Right. Check the relevancy and currency of his or her contacts mm-hmm. and check their ability, how far back have their successes been and how relevant are they today? Mm-hmm. Because the world is changing very quickly. Salesforce and force.com switching to the funding business right. did not exist right. in the previous go around. Right. In the previous downturn, if you take it back 10, 12, 15 years, didn't exist. So these automation and process capabilities were all, I say, people in process now. Mm -hmm. At that time was just people. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. the point is those learnings. And the point was, to your question, you know, hiccups along the way, there have been plenty of them. So picking the right leader, have, finding the right kind of confidence and the right kind of leader is, is critical. And it sounds like while in your other successful businesses, you did that quite well, there was an issue here, obviously. Failed. Where, yeah. Right? And I ask But it every proves day. your learning. It proves your learning. Absolutely. It's, it's the people decisions, which are just as important as the financial decisions, because getting to your other point, right? Process drives the results. 
Listen, and people I, are part of the process. I have three. Is that it? I have three amazing kids yeah. and a wonderful wife. Daughter who's 13, daughter who's 12, son who's nine. And every day I ask them best part of their day. They'll tell me. Every day I'll ask them their biggest challenge. They'll tell me. And every day I ask them for their fantastic fail. And they, <laughs> they brush me aside and I just stick with it. And I want to know what they fail at, right? Because walk through that failure. If it hasn't, if it's going to kill you, be careful because that dramatically changes things, right? <laughs> right if right. you're going to die as the result of an action, <laughs> yeah. you should really consider that. Yeah. But for that, go ahead and fail. If you're living at the outcome, chances are, and in my experience, you're going to be phenomenally better off. And over time, less afraid to try because you're less afraid to fail. Reed, these are wonderful words of wisdom for our listeners. I really appreciate your time today. We're going to have to wrap it up. Um, are there any other stories or words of wisdom uh, for our listeners? Uh, Pride and ego are the root of all evil, and the only solution is grace. Reed, this has been a fascinating uh, interview. In fact, I, I think we still have a lot other stuff we'd like to cover with you in the future, so I look forward to a sequel, Thanks, and maybe Mark. then we can finish the uh, the, the case studies for that Harvard <laughs> Business article we're going to do about Reed Zeising, owner of Cherokee Advisors. Thank you very much, Reed. Thanks, Michael. This show is brought to you by Flock Specialty Finance. To learn more, please visit flockfinance.com.